welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And I am your host, Lauren Burke. And this is the second episode in our season exploring activism and race in 19th century literature. I think it's important to kick things off by introducing this week's author, Lydia Maria Child, or L. Maria Child, author and activist. I will say Child is one of those authors who published a lot and on a lot of different subjects. And um, I think most of us Americans actually only know her as the author of the Thanksgiving poem, Over the River and Through the Woods. Do you do you know that one, Hannah? Is that? No, sadly, I um, I don't. I don't celebrate Thanksgiving. So some of the (sighs) associated literature is I'm less familiar with it. Over can you the can you recite the through poem? the woods to grandmother's house we go although okay fun fact maybe <laughs> this is not so fun lydia oh. actually wrote over the river and through the woods to grandfather's house we go but like someone changed it to grandmother and now that's that's what we know oh. anyway anyway i know the, everyone's shocked mind's blown <laughs> um <laughs> I do want to say that, like, just in an ideal world, I think that Lydia should have as much name recognition as someone like Harriet Beecher Stowe. Yeah. But sadly, sadly, man, that Thanksgiving poem, that's that's really what we're going off of here. (laughs) I maybe we need like some biographies. If anyone out there listening (laughs) writes biographies on women writers. Here we go. Do this one. Although um, it might be tough because she really was like all over the place. Yeah, this is like very much uh, a nutty nutshell of this woman's career and life. Okay, sure. so broad, Fair. broad strokes, guys, broad strokes. She was old. She like lived a long time mm-hmm. as well. <laughs> I will note. So she was born in Massachusetts in 1802 to Susanna and Converse Francis. Her first novel was skipping straight to being able to write. Uh, Hobbamock, a tale of early times, was published in 1824 when she was just 22 years old. And she wrote it in just six weeks. And she wrote it while living with her brother, who was also called Converse Francis and was a Unitarian minister. Oh. Because everyone is, right? Mm -hmm. So Hobbamock is a piece of historical fiction. It's set in the 17th century in New England, specifically in Salem at the time of the British Puritans colonizing the Americas. The novel tells the story of Mary Connan, who is this teenage Puritan Brit, and her relationship with Hobbamock, who's an indigenous American. Now, the representation of an interracial relationship and also the themes of religious dissent in the book made it super controversial at the time. So shocking. People basically didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> uh, and it also preempts a child to publish uh, anonymously using the genderless pseudonym An American. And then later on in life, child would go on to publish pamphlets on indigenous American rights, including an appeal for the Indians, published in 1868. And I do just want to add that um, I have a copy of this book that was produced by Rutgers in their American Women Writers series, which I love, love, love that series of books. It's definitely worth um, tracking down any of that series on like Abe or in a used bookshop, because sadly, I don't think they're 
all in print anymore. In 1826, she founded America's first monthly periodical for children, the Juvenile Miscellany. Unfortunately, the backlash against her anti-slavery works and a significant drop in sales forced Child to close the periodical after publishing it for eight years. Pretty significant, though. Lasted eight Mm. years. Pretty good. During this time, she met and married the lawyer and fellow activist David Lee Child and moved with him to Boston and then later on to New York. In 1829, she published The Frugal Housewife later republished as the American Frugal Housewife. Got to get that distinction in. There was another There was another book. It wasn't Mrs. Beaton. There was another book that was called something. It might even have also been called The Frugal Housewife. Mm. And so it's in competition, right? And so when it's, uh, I think it's like 1832, it was mm-hmm. republished as The American Fr- Frugal Housewife in print for like 25 years. And like she wrote Amazing. all of these, all sorts of books. The 1830s were a really busy time for Child. Not only did she publish the first American anti-slavery book, an appeal in favour of that class of Americans called Africans, but she also raised funds for anti-slavery fairs, which we'll hear more about later on in the episode. Uh, She joined the committee of the American Anti-Slavery Society. She became the editor of their publication, the National Anti-Slavery Standard, which, by the way, her husband eventually took over as editor-in-chief and then she worked as his assistant. And then in the 1840s, the pair returned to Massachusetts and it was there that Child began writing short stories exploring the topic of slavery, including The Quadroons, in 1842. More on that later as well. And then in 1861, Child edited, and I think wrote the preface for, Harriet Mm -hmm. Jacobs' Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, after Harriet Beecher Stowe refused the job. And you'll hear more about that in next week's episode. It's like we planned the whole season. It really is. It's like there was a plan. (laughs) Got notes and everything. Um, So Lydia Maria Child died in 1880, the age of 78. At her funeral, fellow abolitionist Wendell Phillips said, we felt that neither fame, nor gain, nor danger, nor calumny, had any weight with her. It's true. Got no fame. That yeah, girl has no, no fame. fame. <laughs> <laughs> Who's heard of her? <laughs> Very few people. Um, so let's go ahead and dig into some of Child's writing, shall we? Mm. Yeah. Got a piece here all ready to go. Um, I wanted us to talk about the quadroons because not only is it a short piece, which is always handy, right? Yeah, we we love a short piece. <laughs> love a short piece of work. Um, but it also does really set the scene quite nicely for not only what we're going to talk about in our interview today, but also for incidents, for passing, and for the half-cast, which we're going to be discussing later on this season. So, um, Hannah, do you want to go ahead and give us a quick summary of this book for those of you that have not not read it? This is going to be a quick summary, but also if you pause this, you can go to YouTube and listen to the audiobook. It's 27 minutes long. Mm. So you could do that. And if mm-hmm. you don't want to do that, spoiler full summary ahead. Right. The Quadroons was published in the Libsy Bell in 1842 and recounts the life of Rosalie and her daughter Zarifa in the Confederate state of Georgia. 
Rosalie is the daughter of a wealthy merchant from New Orleans and an unnamed enslaved woman, who is just, by the way, introduced as a quadroon to begin with. We don't know that she's an enslaved woman. That's the only word that's used. Rosalie falls in love with a wealthy Georgian, Edward, and the pair have a child, Zarifa, who is very much loved by both of her parents. Edward, however, is ambitious and becomes involved in politics, eventually marrying a wealthy white woman uh, called Charlotte, who sometimes hears him muttering about this mysterious woman called Rosalie, who she hasn't met. One day, while out and about in their carriage, Charlotte spots Zarifa and exclaims on her beauty. Edward's reaction to the child, looking guilty as shit, causes mm-hmm. Charlotte to question what his relationship is to the child. And when she does some digging and discovers that the child's mother is called Rosalie, she puts two and two together. And she becomes frosty to him, right? And their marriage, you know, cools down. Uh, Rosalie just, like, dies after this. Just, she's just dead all of a sudden. Uh, From heartbreak when, you know, she's, I guess. More people used to die of heartbreak back in the day. You notice that? That does happen. I was concerned about it when I was younger, but I was too. Uh, do not think it's going to be a problem for me now. <laughs> so Edward does take care of his daughter, but then he dies as well uh, after falling off his horse when he's drunk at the age of 15, which leaves her completely unprotected because although he had had these thoughts about what he could do to protect her, I think one of them is like sending her to France. He never mm. acts on it. So she's right. just kind of left. Right? Without his protection. Zarifa falls in love with her harp teacher, comedically called George Eliot. Love that. I didn't catch that the first time. Mm, Until you said it. It really threw me off, yeah. (laughs) Uh, But is then seized by a sheriff and sold at auction to cover the debts of her grandmother's master's heirs, who still consider her to be their property. George plans to rescue her, but he's also killed in the attempt, which leaves her brokenhearted and at the mercy of her master. Not long after Zarifa dies, either by accident or at the hands of her master, I'm unclear uh, which, and that's the end of the story. So I will say the popular reading of her death is suicide, but... I like that it's sort of ambiguous in the text because Mm. like even if she did commit suicide, like the real killer is the fact that she's still considered to be enslaved. Right. Like this is Mm -hmm. the real killer is, you know, is her bloodline, essentially. Um, That paragraph where she dies, it's like the second to the last paragraph in the story. Sometimes the last paragraph in the story. We'll get into that in a minute. Um, But it reads... In a few months more, Zarifa was a raving lunatic. The pure temple was desecrated, that loving heart was broken, and that beautiful head fractured against the wall in a frenzy of despair. Her master cursed the useless expense she had caused him. The slaves buried her, and no one wept at the grave of her who had been so carefully cherished and so tenderly beloved. Um, So, yeah, those two sentences sort of next to each other that beautiful head fractured mm. against the wall in a frenzy of despair. Her master cursed the useless mm. expense. The way that those are, yeah, I think put together is very effective. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
we don't spend a lot of time on the plantation. We don't really get a lot of detail, you know, about this whole situation. Um, and I think that's that's good, actually. I don't think she really needs to. One of the things that I admire about Child's writing is that she uses a lot of short sentences and they all just sort of pack a big punch. There's a lot going on in these just like really short sentences and short paragraphs. Um, and there's also a lot of rhythm as well. So you can tell that she is a poet. Child does kick things off with a few lines from Samuel Taylor Coleridge's Ballad of the Dark Lady. Hannah, do you want to read those lines? I think you'd like this poem, by the way, just in its entirety. <laughs> I think you should check this one out. It looks like a man's name to me, I suspect. <laughs> it's not on my reading list. Um, I promised thee a sister tale of man's perfidious cruelty. Come then and hear what cruel wrong befell the dark lady. So following the poem, Child brings you into this sort of landscape mm. and this like fairy tale-esque cottage that's like tucked away in the woods. And she describes, you know, the flowers and the delicate vines that cover the Gothic archways and the way that, you know, the air smells like with all of the magnolia and the flowers. It's really yeah, interesting way to kind of bring you into this really. And you're so grounded in it as well. Like, you mm -hmm. know, you can smell it, you can see it, you can like, it's a very tangible world the cottage specifically as well yes. less so uh, which is interesting because later on the all of the furniture from the cottage is moved from uh, is bought by the man that purchases Zarifa so I think it's really mm -hmm. important that the cottage feels like a real place because it's like the comfort of that and like mm -hmm. the acknowledgement of that beautiful home and it being a safe space that someone would want to emulate uh, right. it like it's carried forward to the end of end of the book. Ooh, and I love that you brought up the furniture because I think that really contributes to this whole nightmarish effect that the story has. So we begin in this beautiful cottage with lovely furniture, a safe and happy home, and then we end with that space recreated where she is being held captive essentially, and it's just this like horrible echo of this happy life that she, you know, once had. And can I just say that this story is hella gothic, which is one of the reasons why I chose it. Um, so we've got like, you know, the architecture, family secrets, dead mom, villainous father who is on a quest for money and power at the expense of his daughter. And finally, trapped women, right? This is all about trapped women. Charlotte is trapped and tricked into a loveless marriage. Rosalie is trapped away in this like secret cottage. Zarifa trapped by her bloodline. It, I mean, this all kind of sounds a little bit cartoonish the way I'm describing it, but I do think it's quite effective sentimental writing. There's, you know, there's a strategy going on here, which we're going to discuss further in the interview, especially when we get into the Liberty Bell and what everyone's trying to, you know, accomplish with that with that writing. Uh, so I read the story online and also listened to that Liverbox audiobook on YouTube. And I did notice that the audio version misses out the very last uh, paragraph or sentences from the story, mm -hmm. which Lauren, do you want to read that? Reader, do you complain that I have written fiction? Believe me, scenes like these are of no unfrequent occurrence in the South. 
the world does not afford such materials for tragic romance as the history of the quadroons. So when I read that, the first thing I thought of was just that so... I feel like so much 19th century writing by women that we have read for the show, because I, I haven't read a lot, guys. Uh, it's always framed with this like almost apologetic comment, either at the beginning or at the end of the story, like, hey, I know you think I'm making this up, but this really happened. Uh, it reminded me of like Anne Bronte in The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. And I'm mm-hmm. just really curious, are male authors also doing this or is it just a hallmark of women's writers at the time right and if you read books by men uh just let me know because i'm not going to <laughs> yeah i um i i don't read books by men so i can't answer your question but yes you know send in some comments let us know i'm glad that you brought up Anne bronte because i actually uh do think there's something like Bronte in about this piece too mm-hmm. like it is gothic but with like a very like clear activist purpose and I think yes. Bronte is like doing the same thing and I think both Lydia and Anne are such um sincere writers mm-hmm. very sincere I thought the title of this piece was also interesting just the use of the word quadroon So for those of you that don't know, it specifically refers to a person who is one quarter black. The word appears twice in the story at the very end in the paragraph that Lauren just read and then towards the beginning as that first introduction to Rosalie's mother who's described as a quadroon and notably not as an enslaved woman until much later. And I think that that is all really intentional on Child's part because it's Mm -hmm. forcing the reader to remember that despite both of these women having white fathers, that the quadroon in the story is is a generation ago. It's the great-grandmother. It's neither Rosalie Mm -hmm. or Zarifa. Uh, And it's, it's forcing readers at the time to remember that these women are considered first and foremost as the historic property of the grandmother's master, regardless of who their fathers are or you know who the family is that they've been raised by it's that initial generational own idea of ownership that's just you know g- coming down through through these women and it's not a surprise when you remember that child was campaigning for the immediate emancipation of enslaved people with no financial restitution to their masters so she's pointing out like you have to You've got to put an end to it. There has to, Mm -hmm. a line just has to be drawn. This can't keep happening. You can't keep having these children that are being born and then these claims because someone is in debt. And then they're like, actually, there is a person out there who is just alive, living their life. And I, you know, and that's how I'm going to settle my debts. Uh, The story did make me think of uh, Kate Chopin's Desiree's Baby. Chopin's short story was published in 1893, so that's a good half a century later. Speaking of that, uh, Child is actually credited with creating the tragic mulatto trope, which we're also going to talk about quite a bit. Um, This is when you have a mixed race woman in a slave owning society whose life ends tragically. But Chopin Chopin does something really interesting where uh, the tragic mulatto is, she turns it on its head, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not the woman that you think it's going to be in Desiree's yeah. baby. It's the husband, but he's obviously assuming that it's the wife, right? And it's play it's playing with, yeah, with that does. trope. Yeah. Um, interestingly, like Harriet Jacobs' narrative also 
turns that trope around as well, which makes me think that child was probably a pretty good editor in that sense that, you know, I'm sure she was there to support the story rather than impose her own ideas as like a storyteller, as an activist Mm -hmm. does seem like this is conjecture, of course, on my part, but it does seem like she actually did sort of pass the mic which uh, not yeah. a lot of gals were doing in her day, which we're going to get mm-hmm. into. So to tell us more about the landscape that Child was living in and writing in, we have a guest for this week. Who is that guest, Hannah? Felicia Gabrielle is a PhD candidate in the Department of History and Classical Studies at McGill University. She studies 19th century Anglo-American anti-slavery and abolition, with a focus on the effective and material culture of abolition, philanthropy, and women's transatlantic anti-slavery networks. Prior to pursuing her doctorate, she worked in non-profits in Canada and the United States. She lives in Montreal, Canada. So yeah, so I did my master's um, in history, um, but I did a very literary topic, um, which I could talk about. Yeah, um, I'm just, I'm very curious. Yeah, so you know, it's always been with me about, um, I've been very interested always in the abolition of the slave trade. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to, you know, really focus on that. But, you know, I'm always interested in the women, like, I don't care about the men, like, I just don't like, um, you know, you have to learn about them. I know the context, ask me any questions, I can answer. But like, especially in this time, like I chose the, um, the early the earlier period the abolition of the slave trade in 1807 mm-hmm. and leading up to that um so this is the period of you know um sentimental novels this is a period of the cult of sensibility women finally um writing publishing you know getting sort of accolades for their writing mm-hmm. um but it's also a time where women are also coming under attack because their writing is seen as being frivolous, sort of meaningless, mm-hmm. uh, anyone could do it sort of thing. It, it's not uh, learned. Um, they didn't have any sort of education. Um, and I, I sort of trace that, that sort of um, dichotomy between women engaging, being active, um, and the criticism. And I use like, <laughs> this is such like an MA thesis, but I use um, Eleanor and Marianne from Sense and Sensibility to like represent. Um, so as you know, like Marianne is, is um, full of sensibility. She's the romantic. Eleanor is the more sort of, we'll speak in measured tones, more rational. Mm-hmm. Um, so I talk about these women's anti-slavery writings, how they use uh, the tones and the conventions of sentimentalism um, but how yes they were criticized uh, by you know by the men in the society they were criticized by some of the some women as well Mm -hmm. but the key thing in my um, MA thesis that I think carried over was this concept of false sensibility and active sensibility so basically like and, and I was thinking about this today, like it, you know, it shows up in my rambling piece and my dissertation, like, so um, false sensibility or like passive sensibility, it was basically like the performative activism. It was very sort of um, rehearsed and meaningless, mm-hmm. but then the active sensibility was actually um, 
turning your natural feelings into action and, and working to change something. Um, so I feel like that kind of dichotomy of, you know, uh, false or passive sensibility and active sensibility has just always been with me. And I see it in Harriet Beecher Stowe and Uncle Tom. Um, I see it in some of my other work. And yeah, but, you know, and this overarching theme, women coming into the public sphere, uh, becoming activists and philanthropists, like um, all, all of that stuff really, really sort of got me in my master's. <laughs> what was the title of your master's thesis? Well, Lauren, hmm. the title of my master's thesis is Sense, Sensibility and Anti-Slavery, British Women's Involvement in the Abolition of the Slave Trade. <laughs> but yeah, so my topic now, um, now that I've told you about sort of the trajectory that I've had, you know, I knew I wanted to think more about these abolitionist women, but I wanted to expand the focus. Like I didn't just want to do British women. Um, so I don't know, one day I was just sort of like, you know, um, going through some online archives, just trying to kind of like get a sense of what, what kind of sources are out there and available to me. And I came across these, um, these reports of the National Anti-Slavery Bazaar and um, little, little kind of like, almost like flyers for um, the, the bazaar. And um, it was almost like its own kind of like little newspaper. It was like the National Anti-Slavery um, Bazaar Gazette. And I was just like, what is this? I've never heard of this. And I have studied abolition and anti-slavery for many years. Um, but like the descriptions of them, um, the, like of these events are just so fascinating to me because they were events, um, I don't know, they were events where all these abolitionists came together and basically um, bought things right. <laughs> um, to benefit the, the abolition movement. Mm -hmm. But the way these things are described, like they're described as little objects of taste and art they're described um, as useful and ornamental articles. And, you know, they, they have these amazing descriptions. Like I don't, I, I have some with me if I, oh, yeah. if you want, I could, I could read so just some passages. Um, let me see here. Um, hmm. So it's like the okay. renegade craft fair, but to sort of raise money for anti-slavery causes. Yeah. And I think in my, yeah, in my rambling piece, I talk about this as well. Um, what was sold were these articles of clothing, very elegant articles of clothing, needlework, embroidery, um, artworks, oil paintings, um, amazing kind of like stationary kits and writing materials, children's books, um, anti-slavery china, tea sets, um, gift books, um, which I'll get more into the gift books uh, in a second because I'm obsessed with them. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> But there's just this one description and um, sort of, and we'll get into this, but where all these goods came from were Europe. It was from Europe okay. um, and especially the UK. So England, Ireland, Scotland, um, a lot came from France. Um, some came from Switzerland, Germany. Um, some came from Canada, <laughs> but of course, as you could imagine, the Paris, uh, the big cities like the, the Paris boxes and the London boxes, 
you know, um, some of the scotch boxes uh, were just like had phenomenal uh, items in them. And okay, here's the description of a Paris, a Paris box. Um, okay. We will not attempt to enumerate the exquisite articles in china, bronze, buell, ivory, and leather, the drawings, pictures, photographs, toys, and petit objets of every variety that made up the Paris collection. We think the French box of this year the most elegant and attractive that Miss Chapman has ever forwarded. A gift from Mrs. F.G. Shaw of the woodwork of Sorrento, redolent of olive groves and orange bowers, furnished Christmas and New Year's presents that were entirely novel, while Mrs. Follin's contribution from London was rich in pictures, books, and the prettiest toys possible. And that's not even like, that's not even the best description. They also exhibited artwork mm-hmm. and um, sort of like historical curiosities, mm-hmm. uh, rare books, anything to draw people in um, to purchase. And um, so some examples of some of these like prized items or artworks uh, include a China set belonging to uh, Louis Philippe, um, a reproduction Venus de Milo, a picture gallery um, of works from uh, several revered old masters, elaborate tapestries, rare Staffordshire China, rare books. Um, Also, there were autographs from some of these really famous British abolitionists. Mm Um, you know, your James Montgomery, Thomas Clarkson, William Wilberforce, um, the Wedgwood family donated, uh, several boxes of, you know, their famous, their famous, uh, cameos. So bringing in Harriet Beecher Stowe, she did say that these bazaars were decidedly the most fashionable shopping resort of the holidays. And, um, Truly. I mean, she truly. was absolutely correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like they were the talk of the town. Um, basically like, you know, the event of the year, a lot of people um, did their Christmas shopping there, um, Christmas and new year shopping. And that's another thing. The bazaars were always set around the holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, very cleverly set around the holidays. They lasted for two weeks. Um Back when they were first, so they first started um, in 1834. So I, I studied the Boston Bazaar. The um, bazaars were in Boston, Philadelphia, New York, and Rochester. But the Boston Bazaar was the biggest. It was like the crown jewel of all the bazaars. Um, and the Boston Bazaar went from 1834 to 1858. Um and it was run by the, the Boston, um, basically by the Boston Women's Anti-Slavery Society. There's a whole complicated backstory there about like the schisms and like different factions. But basically it was run by um, an abolitionist, Maria Weston Chapman and her sisters. And oh my God, she was the most like clever uh, manager, marketer, businesswoman, you know, um, she organized these bazaars and made them the events of the season by making um, all of these interventions. Like, you know, um, there's this one story about um, a Christmas tree closing down the bazaar. Um, 
because like I said, it's at Christmas and New Year's. Um, but in this, at this time, Christmas wasn't really a thing that people celebrated. It was just mostly they exchanged uh, New Year's gifts. Um, <laughs> but uh, around, around um, like the 1840s, Christmas trees were, were still new. But um, at this event, at the bazaar, it was the very first like Christmas tree that Bostonians saw. Like it was super big. Um, and she advertised like, come see this Christmas tree, um, take the gifts on its, um, on its um, branches. You know, it was meant to be this huge, this huge thing. And it actually shut down the bazaar that year um, because so many people came and crowded the hall. Um, you know, people were like shoving and pushing each other. Um, it was, it was pretty intense. I'm guessing you probably go into this, but also I'm thinking about just like this, these bizarre connections to like shaping American Christmas, which is like its own beast, right? Oh my God. Yeah. There's, um, yeah, there's a whole element here of my dissertation with, um, sorry, I'm just finding uh, with consumerism yeah. and uh, mat- material culture and how material culture of abolition is is just is key here um, because the bazaars, like as I'll as I'll sort of get into, um, it was all about ethical consumption mm-hmm. and basically the effective properties of objects and that objects they weren't just you know objects they had sort of an emotional power, they had an effective resonance. And by people buying these objects, it was their way of participating in the movement. Mm -hmm. Um, And if I sort of back up, um, the the whole like bizarre system, it was basically to finance the abolition movement in the US. Um, It was like the major fundraising arm of the American Anti-Slavery Society. And it was always held during the holidays, you know, to cultivate like all of that sort of holiday, um, everything we associate with the holidays, you know, the the holiday cheer, the the community, the gathering, the sparkle. It was a major fundraising arm. Without it, the American abolition movement wouldn't be like it, it just wouldn't have gone anywhere because it funded the abolitionist newspapers. It funded lecture tours. Um, and just it kept the lights on. But what's fascinating to me is that in the history of uh, the anti-slavery movements, it is barely mentioned. Like I said, like I had studied this for many years and I did not hear about anti-slavery fairs and bazaars. It was only when I came across these reports and I, I just had to learn more. So um, not only are these, you know, bazaars, super important to the movement and obviously really interesting when we talk about um, materiality, material culture, consumer culture, um, especially, you know, in this time um, in the antebellum era, the Victorian era, the the Victorians were all about their objects, Mm -hmm. all about um, surrounding themselves um, with objects, um, you know, which conveyed their class preferences, their taste preferences, um, and really, which conveyed their their um, 
morality, you know, um, it was seen as the, the objects you have around you um, show what kind of person you are. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we have all of this, but the fact is the people who ran these bazaars were women, you know? Um, so it's interesting because if you, if you read all these reports, if you read the letters of the time, um, everyone acknowledges the importance of the bazaar but they also downplay it because they just expect women to um, volunteer their labor for these causes. And this is like, um, goes into a longer history, which I'm also really fascinated in of um, the history of women's philanthropy in both the U S and the UK, because a lot it's very, very similar. Um, You know, this idea of the angel of the households, um, that women are imbued with this, um, this moral sense, this, this goodness, and that they can um, shape society into, you know, the ideal society. So women were always expected to do philanthropy, basically, especially middle and upper class women. So these women, they ran these bazaars for many, like, these bazaars were for many different causes. Um you know, this is called the National Anti-Slavery Bazaar, but they were also known as fancy fairs, um, charity bazaars. Um, the expression vanity fair um, is from um, this, this kind of stereotyping of these bazaars because they were meant to be these, um, these spectacles, these places where people can escape, you know, the humdrum, normal life, Um, they were meant to be extraordinary. People were meant to walk around um, to see and to be seen, um, you know, socialize. And this is also a a worrying thing because, um, you know, men and women are socializing in public, which at this time, you know, um, is a little bit untoward. Um, Also different classes, socializing together. It's also sort of um, a faux pas in this time. So, you know, all these sort of transgressive, like, um, qualities were ascribed to the bazaars. Um, but mainly, they were seen as being frivolous and um, not serious endeavors. So the abolitionists at the time, they were, you know, um, confronted with all these negative stereotypes of the bazaars because they, people would call them vanity fairs. So they would have to publish um, in, in the abolitionist newspapers, um, basically proving that they are serious and legit and that like these bazaars aren't like regular fancy fairs for other causes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're serious affairs. They're meant to bring people together to work towards the eradication of slavery um, they're, you know, meant to inspire awareness. They, they are important, unlike these other bazaars. Mm-hmm. So it was just an unfortunate, it's very unfortunate to see that because it's like, you know, you have women punching down on other women here, mm-hmm. like, um, which is, with, but which, as we know, in our own time, women do all the time to get ahead. Uh, there's, there are these dynamics. So I found that fascinating that in its own time period, it was acknowledged to be a super important um, facet of the abolition movement, but it was sort of made fun of, it wasn't as serious. And then in the historiography, 
So how the um, abolition movement is written about, it is barely there. Yeah, I begin my dissertation with kind of outlining this history of, of women's philanthropy and where the abolitionists kind of fit in. You know, I um, go through who who are the who are the people I'm I'm interested in here. Um, so I'm interested in the um, British women and the American women uh, abolitionists, and I'm really interested in the transatlantic networks that were created at this time, and that were so solid. Like you know, you you'll read some of these letters, and these women were were very close. Um, there was a, a, a very um, intense sense of solidarity um, they had. Um, they, they really believed they were working to eradicate slavery. They were, um, you know, they were doing everything they could. And th- there was very much a sisterhood here between American women and British women. Um, but there was a whole other aspect of the bazaar that, um, is really interesting because basically you're surrounded by anti-slavery propaganda. Like as soon as you walk in, um, basically there were there were anti-slavery flags that decorated the hall. Um, there were anti-slavery banners with um, slogans, and I have some here: um, "Proclaim liberty throughout all the land and unto all the inhabitants thereof." let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. The truth shall make us um, free. And these were just like placed all over um, the, whatever hall they were in, um, in big letters. Um, so the, the women organizers of these events, they really understood um, the visual power of, of these things. And they knew to put like, you know, posters and banners um, Another thing that they did, um, anti-slavery slogans and mottos were also posted everywhere, but they were also inscribed on objects sold at the bazaar. So it wasn't just fancy stuff. It was also useful um, sort of quotidian stuff that we sort of use every day. So for example, um, quills were sold in bunches and they were labeled 25 weapons for abolitionists. Um, Onto the needle books, uh, the phrase, may the use of our needles prick the consciences of slaveholders. Um, also, one of my favorites, uh, on the soles of shoes, uh, it was written, trample not on the uh, oppressed. Um, these women are selling the message of immediate emancipation. They're selling, you know, um, their ideology. Um, and one of, sort of, one of the important um, abolitionist at this time, Lydia Maria Child, she wrote, um, quote, the main object is to keep the subject before the public eye and by every innocent um, expedient to promote perpetual discussion. So, you know, they very much knew to keep things before the public eye and they knew how to make things to be a conversation starter. Um, and I just want to just want to say one more thing about that, because a lot of these things, like I mentioned, are these daily quotidian things, you know, people use every day, like quills, shoes, um, you know, needle cases. Um, So Maria Weston Chapman, who I think I've mentioned before, she was the architect of of these fairs and bazaars and and the primary manager. 
Um, and she once wrote in the Liberator, um, which was one of the main um, abolitionist newspapers at this time, about these um, objects with the mottos and um, the slogans inscribed on them. She wrote, quote, most of the little implements of housewifery were covered with appropriate mottos and devices. When pincushions are periodicals and needle books are tracks, discussion can hardly be stifled or slavery perpetuated. And I love that because like when pincushions are periodicals, the needle books are tracks. She's placing like these domestic objects that mostly women would use on the same like scale as actual like political writing, uh, treatises. Um, yeah, um, things that normally, you know, men would write. And I, I just think she was so smart and all of these organizers were so smart on really impressing the visual object lesson of anti-slavery upon people. And people very much felt connected to the cause because of this. And they felt that um, they were buying a piece of anti-slavery basically. Because right. if you bought one of these things with these mottos, you could you know, display it in your house and look at it and think, you know, I'm such a good person. I, you know, I've supported this cause, but people were also very, um, they had very effective, um, experiences at at the bazaar. So that's effective with an A. Mm -hmm. Um, um, it was, it was kind of a very sort of, um, I want to use the word emotional, but I'm going to stick with effective. Um, It was a very effective experience because here are all these people coming together, um, very, uh, very much wanting to end slavery. You know, they're investing in these objects with uh, abolitionist um, slogans and mottos. In the evenings, there were refreshments served. There was music, like anti-slavery songs. Um, There were speeches by some of the, like, um, most well-known abolitionists at the time, like William Lord Garrison, Frederick Douglass, um, Charles Remond. Uh, there were so many, um, so many speeches um, given to just boost boost morale and to make everyone feel like they're a part of the cause. Um, There's also this whole uh, ethical consumption aspect of it where um, all the refreshments served were um, free produce and made with free labor and the kind of things like uh, any kind of sweets, anything that used sugar um, was advertised as being made with um, free sugar, not so not from slave labor. Um, they also had clothing items um, that were advertised as being made with free cotton. So they were very cognizant of um their consumption of these items, this issue of ethical consumption in this time and in our own time of, you know, shopping sustainably, fair trade, um, even to an extent, like in the wellness space too, like clean eating. I was just thinking that. There's so, yeah, like people want to feel good, Mm -hmm. right? About what they do. So if, if you're buying something that is fair trade or, you know, um, grown by um, paid labor, not uh, slave labor, you're going to feel better about yourself. Mm -hmm. You're going to tell more people. 
Um, and this is exactly what these bazaars were about. Another thing uh, that was sold at the bazaar were gift books. I think I mentioned mm -hmm. this before. And um, the one that was sold at the bazaar was called The Liberty Bell. And its editor was Maria Weston Chapman, who I mentioned before. And what it was is, um, I don't know, like, I feel like this was more of a concept back then, but we sort of have this now. They were, they were called gift books or literary annuals. Um, some were released for different reasons, like around different times of the year. But this was a Christmas annual. And it was kind of like a keepsake book where, um, you know, it's uh, gilt edges, um, beautiful, like leather, like leather bound, um, mother of pearl inlay, like beautiful, like marbling embossed letters. So it's very much like a, like a fancier sort of collectible item. Mm -hmm. So this was published every year, essentially, um, you know, while the bazaars were in operation. And Maria Weston Chapman would solicit uh, writing from, you know, from abolitionist uh, writers in the US and in the UK. So again, here we're seeing these transatlantic connections, the transatlantic um, interplays and networks coming, coming together. Um, and she got, she got like basically the who's who, you know, of her day, like, um, you mentioned Elizabeth Barrett Browning before she wrote for these, um, you know, Harriet Martineau, um, uh, I, I believe, um, Madame de Stahl wrote for them as well. Like, you know, basically, um, the who's who of, of literature at this time would contribute a story or a poem um obviously men wrote as well um a lot of sort of um romantic writers would write uh, the transcendental um writers in the states that would write and yeah these were sold every year um I want one. and i find them fascinating <laughs> yeah no i find them so fascinating because not only are they like i i, I love things like this mm -hmm. like these collectible books but like they um one could see them as these um, sort of effective objects in themselves. Like, yes, it's a book, but a book is an object. Mm -hmm. And when you buy that object and bring it home, again, you're feeling good about yourself for contributing to this cause. It's a memento. Um, the writing inside of it is, is very sentimental. Like this all sentimental writing. So there's just so much emotion, um, you know, in this object. Um, and I'm, I'm also fascinated at women as editors, because again, like the sort of um, secret of this whole dissertation project is that women's labor is always disregarded. It's always invisibilized mm -hmm. and it's not taken seriously. And this is, you know, yet again, another example. Um, women were amazing, <laughs> like in this, in this period, like they edited these collections. So Maria Weston Chapman uh, was the editor of the Liberty Bell. It was extremely successful. You know, a lot of these um, Christmas annuals, literary annuals, they would only run for a few years, but like this was a long standing one. Like I said, just sort of the, the who's who creme de la creme of the literary world would, would contribute to them. Um, and you get to see a lot of the, you know, in the archives in the, you know, in the letters that I've read and the, in the sources I've read, you get to see Maria Weston Chapman 
making decisions as an editor, um, you know, who of who she wants to write for, like who she wants to contribute, the sort of themes that she wants to um, include. Um, and then in the, I, I, you know, in Manchester, when I was there um, doing my archive trip, I came across another, another um, gift book um, by a woman in Sheffield. Um, she was a British abolitionist. Um, her name was Marianne Rawson. And um, she's incredible. Like, like um, she's definitely worth more study. She came from a like very famous uh, Sheffield abolitionist family. She was involved in so many moral causes of her day. Um, but she was the editor of a gift book called The Bow in the Cloud. And like the Liberty Bell, it had all of the who's who of the day, both British and American writers, intellectuals. Um, and I love some of the archival material I found in the John Rylands Library and the Sheffield um, archives. Because like there were just all of this, this amazing stuff about Marianne Rawson, like, you know, being quite like demanding of the printers, like because she 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 wanted it to look a certain way. Yeah. She wanted the paper and the bindings to be a certain way. Um, you know, she wanted to have the ultimate thing. She was the editor after all. And it just it's just amazing. Um, I was just my mind was being blown in the archives reading these things because when do we see a woman um, being assertive like that and articulating what she wants, um, basically articulating how she's put so much work into this, this is her project, you know, even, even to this day, like, uh, that's an issue, you know, women make themselves small, mm -hmm. um, they, they're not as assertive, they don't want to be seen as being off-putting or, you know, too domineering. But I just I thought it was so refreshing to see in the archives um, this woman articulate what she wants and what she wants for her work mm -hmm. and her project. And, you know, um, so I'm fascinated in gift books for all those reasons. But I love this theme as women, as organizers of these really important bazaars, you know, executing their vision um, uh, and women as editors also executing their vision. But they, they are digitized and the Liberty Bell, you can find for free online. Um, this is an amazing resource. And I feel like you would love this. Your listeners, if they don't know about it, I'm sure many do would love this. But the Boston Public Library has um, an amazing anti-slavery collection. It's a noted collection. It's a collection of excellence. Um, they have so many things digitized. Um, all of these letters I'm talking about, between these women, um, the organizers of the bazaars, um, abolitionists at the time, um, they're all within this anti-slavery collection. Um, there's like the Weston Chapman papers, so Maria Weston Chapman and her sisters, you know, talking about uh, details about everything, but like about the bazaar, the planning. You have William Lloyd Garrison's papers, Frederick Douglass's papers, um, and you know, as part of the Weston Chapman collection, since she was the editor of the Liberty Bell, you do have um, the Liberty Bell. You could you could access you could access writings about it, mm -hmm. um, letters that they wrote about it. I believe you can access the Liberty Bell through there as well. Oh. Um, but the last part of my you know my dissertation is where we get really critical mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because 
you know, in the abolitionist press, they talk about these events as being places where people of all like genders, class, uh, backgrounds, and races can come together and, you know, act in community solidarity. But in reality, that's not the case. In reality, there's a lot of like problematic things um, related to the bazaars. And I, I go through some of these things in my piece for the ramblings um, where, you know, uh, again, Maria Weston Chapman, who is this great organizer, editor, abolitionist, but also said extremely like inappropriate and racist things about Frederick Douglass, about Charles Parker Remond. Um, you have stories of abolitionists at this time, um, especially after the fugitive slave law of 1850 is passed. Um, a lot of abolitionists want to focus their efforts on helping fugitives and aiding their escapes, financing their escapes. Whereas some abolitionists instead, they don't want to do that because they think that just helping um, a fugitive here and there, it's not going to solve the, the overall issue of um, slavery. So it's just very uncomfortable to read those things and to see like these women instead pouring their resources into the bazaar instead of like measurably helping someone to, to freedom and safety. Um, and then you see, you see the, uh, the rhetoric of just because someone is uh, an abolitionist and they, you know, believe that slavery is a sin, it's, um, it's morally wrong, it's a sin upon the nation, does not mean that they are anti-racist. Right. <laughs> um, and, and that is, that, that really, really um, is made clear. You know, um, there, there are not just white women in these societies, in these bazaars, there are free Black women who are also in these societies. Um, and usually these, these free Black women are from the upper classes or the sort of upper middle class. Um, they're routinely sort of cast to the side. Mm -hmm. um, all the women who dominate these anti-slavery societies and the planning committees of the bazaars and the fairs, they're all white women. Um, so they they speak the rhetoric of inclusivity, um, integration, but it's really, it's really dominated by the white women. Um, they have very kind of mat like maternalist <laughs> um, attitudes towards um, sort of the free black population. Um, a lot of, a lot of free black women in these uh, societies they want to improve the lives of, of the free black community. They want to have schools. They want to, um, you know, uh, support those communities because at this time, um, the free black populations were very poor. They occupied, you know, all the jobs that no one wanted. Um, they're very much working class. Um, so um, these, these, these women wanted to educate them. And sometimes <laughs> some of the societies would pay for that and they would have a um, sometimes a white woman teaching, but yeah, it was very controversial and these white women were often threatened and, um, you know, often threatened with violence uh, for teaching um, 
black students or like trying to integrate uh, white students and black students. So um, a lot of a lot of the free black abolitionists, women abolitionists, they they taught school and they, they taught to these free black children. Um, and um, they thought they were getting support from these primarily um, white um, abolitionist women societies. But no, they really didn't right. <laughs> um, because, you know, the white women, they exhibited these maternalist kind of really condescending attitudes where they wanted to see, you know, certain things like they wanted the students to come every day. They wanted to see a certain level of rigor in the education, but they didn't take into it into account that some of these students could not come every day because they had to work right. or they had to like support their parents. So, you know, um, they were very condescending, overbearing, and, you know, some of them pulled their funding from these schools. Um, so when you look at it that way, like, yes, they're against slavery, but they are not interested in helping the lives of for the free black community or of the formerly enslaved. Like they're, they're interested in this overarching concept of anti-slavery, slavery is a sin. But then when it comes to what do you do with the formerly enslaved? What do you do after slavery? They still hold these very racist hierarchical views that like they need to civilize these people and um, they need to teach them proper middle-class values, um, religion. Um, and it's just, it's really upsetting um, to read that. And, and just, just to know that around this time, also race science, um, eugenics, mm. all of those things are big. So um, there are people who believe at this time that, you know, the white Anglo-Saxon is the sort of pinnacle of human um, intelligence, uh, prosperity, whatever. Um, whereas there are lesser races and they, they believe, a lot of them believe that, um, African-Americans were, um, were lesser than them and they needed to be taught. They needed to be, um, guided into civil, like civility. Um, and you really see that with these, uh, you know, some of these, some of these remarks and, um, can I tell the story about Frederick Douglass that I speak about in my yeah, article yeah, or, sure. yeah. So Frederick Douglass, taught himself to read, taught himself um, uh, to, to, to really kind of project his voice, the great oratory, great rhetoric. And he would go, um, him and some other abolitionists at this time would go to the UK on lecture tours. Um, and at this time, what they did, he basically spoke to them about his time as um, an enslaved man how he escaped, um, how, you know, he taught himself um, to read and, and, and how he um, sort of came into the abolitionist community. Um, he was so, so good at it. Um, like he, he captivated audiences um, with his speeches. You know, he traveled all across the UK. So England, Ireland, Scotland, all of his lectures were like sold out, totally full. Um, he not only spoke to kind of um, 
upper class uh, British audiences, but he also spoke to working class people, really identified um, with them and, and a lot of their struggles. He just, he appealed to all aspects of society. And, um, you know, he was basically encouraging after all his talks um, for people to donate things to the bazaar. So this was, this was crucial. Like these, these lecture tours, they were to generate interest mm -hmm. and to generate um, support for the bazaars. So like um, they would tell these women's societies, okay, donate basically to the bazaar. Um, so he was, he was extremely important to this whole effort. And it's just, it's so gross <laughs> hearing some, like seeing some of these things that were written about him. Um, so Maria Weston Chapman, basically wrote a letter um, to an Irish abolitionist, um, Richard Webb at the time, basically po uh, postulating that um, all this fame um, that Douglas was receiving would go to his head and that he would sort of be drunk with vanity. Um, he'd be irresponsible and, you know, um, he would make bad decisions because of that. So being extremely like, patronizing and um, condescending. And, you know, after all uh, Frederick Douglass has been through and um, all of the benefits he has given to the abolition movement, um, it's, just, it's just so unconscionable what she wrote. Um, but he ended up finding out because this guy, Richard Webb, ended up reading the letter out loud, oh, which I don't know why he did. I don't know why he did that. But so... I'm, I'm reading these letters and Frederick Douglass does not take this lightly. Like he writes back to Maria Weston Chapman right away. And he, his language is so strong. And he basically says that to her. He basically says like, um, I would not let sort of fame and vanity get to me. I have worked um, extremely hard for the society. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm someone you could trust. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm really offended that you would say otherwise. And it's just... I mean, in our day today, we would call this white feminist behavior right. um, because that's exactly what it is. Um, and he wrote about this in My Bondage and My Freedom in 1855. He says, quote, I was generally introduced as a chattel, a thing, a piece of Southern property, the chairman assuring the audience that it could speak. So, you know, he basically writes that He's, he's seen as still, like after all this time, seen as an object, seen as uh, someone who is put to use. Um, you know, an, an, an abolitionist at, the at this time would do this to, um, to African-American lecturers. They would try to stage manage mm -hmm. them. They, you know, they, they wanted them to speak about kind of... Um, the gory details of their enslavement they because they wanted that shock right you know the shock value they wanted audiences to hear that they basically wanted these people to sort of replay their traumas mm -hmm. like for these audiences they did not want them to comment on anything else so they did not want them to comment on racism in the north which was very much there right. um they didn't want them to critique american society in any way they just wanted them to be these people like reliving their pain and their suffering over and over mm -hmm. again um but frederick Douglass did not do that he he pushed against that expectation 
because not only did he he told them about his enslavement, his escape, um, he he critiqued um, American society. He critiqued Northern racism. Um, this this notion that you could be an abolitionist but you're still racist. Um, he criticized even the American abolition movement, which was very kind of fractured and fraught at this period. Um, so he was sort of this wild card. I, that's why, I, you know, transitioning into the rambling piece, um, I was doing this research. I was reading these letters, reading these sources, seeing this. And I was just so, like, struck by it um, because I've always felt, you know, as, as, a, as a white woman writing about this topic, um, you know, it could be very easy for me to just ignore all of these complexities, uh, the racism, the critiques of the white abolitionists. And there are people who do that because they don't want to get into the complexities. They don't want to get into the thorniness of these issues. Um, but I, I, I never want to do that. Um, I think when you study something, you absolutely should look for all the complexities, the criticisms, um, because if you don't, you're not really learning anything. You know, you're just repeating a sort of um, like great, uh, great man theory of history, if you're doing that. Um, so this is where I think Harriet Beecher Stowe comes in because she has talked about so much in these reports, these bizarre reports in these letters, these sources, because she used to come to the bazaar as well. Like she was present and, um, you know, she wrote in these, these, these publications, these abolitionist publications. And obviously the main, the <laughs> Uncle Tom's Cabin and the success it had it really reinvigorated a lot of the UK abolitionists. So it's funny because after, after Uncle Tom is published in the, in the bazaars that follow it, so they're seeing so many more donations from, from Europe, from the UK, they're seeing um, references to Harriet Beecher Stowe, to characters from Uncle Tom. Um, you're seeing all that referenced in the in the ephemera and the letters and the reports of the day. Um, and, and they speak about her and about Uncle Tom in such like reverent um, tones. Like they are so obsessed basically uh, with it. Um, and you come across these really interesting things. Like there's even a letter from, you know, a Russian nobleman who, you know, um, basically compares what's happening, um, slavery in the United States with serfdom in Russia. And he talks about how he couldn't get over the similarities when he read Uncle Tom's Cabin and his, this letter is published in um, the Liberty Bell. He said, quote, I will add, madam, for your information in what concerns Russia, that in reading Uncle Tom's Cabin, I have been often and sadly impressed by the applicability of the sketches of Madame Stowe to what I have known of similar horrors, known not merely by tales, but by authentic uh, process, which passed through my hands in the Imperial Council of State. Many scenes depicted in this book seem the exact counterpart of events equally frightful which occurred in Russia. And he goes on to sort of make um, 
you know, um, reference to some of the characters in Uncle Tom's Cabin and how they correspond to um, figures, uh, you know, Russian nobles of this mm-hmm. time. And, um, and I, I found that was fascinating, but I've always been interested in these tensions between false sensibility and active sensibility and sentimental literature, which is definitely what Uncle Tom's Cabin mm-hmm. is. It's a sentimental novel. Um, there is this belief that they can lead to radical sort of transformative social change. Um, I mean, we do know that Uncle Tom was extremely popular. It, you know, it reinvigorated um, the movement. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it really does not <laughs> inspire this radical um, transformative social change because what sentimental literature does as we know it tries to um inspire pity sympathy compassion and empathy so that you know people who um would otherwise not know about a certain issue or you know a a certain atrocity that's being committed will now know about it and they can't look away Um, but in doing so sentimental novels usually flatten um, the people they try to help. So they take away those people's agency. They, um, any kind of social or political critique that one could make um, is usually not as trenchant as it should be because they, they want their sentimental novels to be palatable mm-hmm. for mass audiences. Um, so in doing so, um, they flatten and soften. Um, so it could be sort of easily digested. Um, and when you do that, I think, how can you possibly radically transform society when you are catering to um, the person sitting at home comfortably reading this? Right. You don't want to offend their sensibilities. Um, so I, I don't know. I feel like on that on that angle like yes sentimental narratives like Uncle Tom's Cabin they did do some good um you know some people say that these works which appear to mass audiences they start mass conversations Mm -hmm. but like yeah a conversation is started but there's no radical social change like a lot of these abolitionists uh like I said they did not see um the enslaved or the free black populations to be on the same level as them. They were, were very racist towards them, very condescending. Um, and even at the end of Stowe's novel, like um, it's, it's very ambiguous. I mean, I, I'm not a Stowe literary scholar, so I'm sure people have different opinions, but she's basically suggesting that there is no space for um for the formerly enslaved in the American body politic like she's basically suggesting colonization Mm -hmm. so where where can the radical social change be when you have um when you have these sort of racist views baked in to the very premise of like the sentimental novel um and okay um (laughs) I, I want to bring this back to this concept of the anti-slavery fairs, people buying these things to feel good about themselves, because that's exactly what um, what all this is about. Yeah. <laughs> I think, um, you know, it's about white people feeling good about themselves. So, you know, it's about these white readers reading Uncle Tom and 
really empathizing with the characters, uh, you know, feeling like they now know so much about slavery. They're going to do what they can to like, you know, they're going to go to the bazaar and, 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 and buy this um, pen wiper with uh, uh, anti-slavery inscription on it. Um, as much as I love the bazaars, I know they're important in the, in the history of the movement, but they are not the agent of radical change. Um, they are not the agent um, that is going to truly fight for equality and a, a new, a better um, society. I do want to bring up one thing that I've always loved and thought about in relation to Uncle Tom, and that is um, what James Baldwin has to say about uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and sentimental literature in general. He calls Uncle Tom's Cabin um, a genre of the protest novel. Um, and this is what he says about them. So, quote, the protest novel, so far from being disturbing, is an accepted and comforting aspect of the American scene. Whatever unsettling questions are raised are evanescent, titillating, remote, for this has nothing to do with us. It is safely ensconced in the social arena, where indeed it has nothing to do with anyone, so that finally we receive a very definite thrill of virtue from the fact that we are reading such a book at all. This report from the pit reassures us of its reality and its darkness and of our own salvation. And I think like that says it all, like what we're after is that definite thrill of virtue. That's what we're mm -hmm. after when we're consuming sentimental literature. Um, we're after looking into the pit, um, relishing almost in a perverse way in others' um, struggles um, so that we know about it. We know it's a reality. We know that we're not in it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and we feel like by engaging with it, we have that thrill of virtue. So we feel like we are now, uh, like he said, um, working towards our own salvation. So it has not become about the people suffering. It becomes about our own, like, empowerment, mm -hmm. which is so perverse. And I just think this, this quote, it links to everything that I have said, like, about false sensibility, active sensibility about um, these tensions in the abolitionist movement between being um, an abolitionist versus being um, anti-racist, um, these tensions about uh, consumerism and like, there's just, there's just so many things this encapsulates, this definite thrill of virtue. And we are back. Uh, thank you so much to Felicia for coming on the show and sharing your expertise with us and for Lauren for, you know, conducting that three hour interview and the one and a half hour version that you sent to me uh, and the shorter version that the listeners have enjoyed yeah. today. I know you've had a rough time cutting it down because <laughs> it was all so interesting. If you would like to read more on the subject, then we really recommend Felicia's rambling article the problem of fashionable abolition, performative allyship then and now. And I also really love that the article references another great piece 
by Trisha Matthew on the anti-slavery sugar boycotts and memorabilia of the 18th century, serving tea for the cause. So we're going to go ahead and wrap it up for this week. But next week, we are going to be talking about Harriet Jacobs. And we're also getting in a little Francis Harper in there. Which I'm very, very excited about because our <laughs> guest next week is Dr. Caritha Mitchell. Um, she's an expert on both. She does connect both. She's got some awesome insights. It also was another really long interview that I hated to cut down. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait for it, though. It's a really great discussion. Um if you would like to weigh in on anything that we discussed today or the quadroons or any of the texts that we will be reading this season, we would love to hear from you. And Hannah, I almost want to say, and Hannah, Hannah June, but no one will get that reference because that nope. is a below deck reference. Anyway, Hannah, Hannah and June. Hannah, where can you, <laughs> or is it June, June, Hannah? June, June, Hannah, 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 June. You were there on the walkies, and they were like, they had that yeah. one girl, June, who was like never picking up her walkie. June. And Hannah, where can the good people find us? You can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us at bonnets at dawn at gmail.com. You can join our lively discussion group on Facebook by searching for Bonnets at Dawn. And you can buy our book, Why She Wrote, wherever you get your usual literary fix. Bye.